When Arsenal knocks on the door of players, it's a different knock than other clubs. Clubs, clubs, clubs. The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. This new contract here at Arsenal, but what made you so sure that this was the best place and this was the right decision for you? It's Arsenal, you know. Come on, it's Arsenal. Welcome back to Different Opinion, You're an Idiot, an Arsenal podcast with Alexander Moneypenny and my very good friend. George V. We don't know where Bradley is. <laughs> Someone send out an APB on a certain Scrabbly Adams. <laughs> Straight up, we told him what time it was. No idea where he is. So um, he might come on halfway through this podcast. Who knows? Um, is he ducking the West Ham podcast test in the same way that we might have we ducked the West Ham test yesterday? Um, also, should also say before we uh, start, my voice um, uh, is is not good. Oh, I've just got an oh my god, sorry from Brad. So he'll be here in a second. Um, my voice is not good. Um, I I'm sick and tired of this shit. Uh, George, hello. And um, this has this last sort of twenty four hours. I don't know how you felt. I've been really sad, like super sad about this result. Um, and I think there's so many different reasons why. I think there's so many possible avenues to go down. I'd like to discuss all of them. But I think the first thing that I'd like to talk about and get your perspective on is the solution. Right, I think there's probably loads and loads of different re- like things we could go down. What happened yesterday? How it all went down? Whatever. But I think if I'm listening right now, 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever it is after the after the fact, I would love someone to to talk about the solutions and try and see this in a positive light. We know this wasn't a good result. We know we dropped points. Like it's not fun. We've probably all been through to some degree or another a period of like fuck. This is hard. Um, so I kind of want to start this by talking about solutions. The first thing I'm going to throw over your side is structurally. I I I, I don't want to put this all on Rob Holding. It's not all on Rob Holding, but Rob Holding is a is a problem in our team, and his 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 presence has a knock on effect in my opinion. We know what he is. I don't think it's worth abusing this guy. I don't think it's fair to abuse him. We know what he does. Ultimately, he. Even even in the the most positive version of Rob Holding, he wins his duels. Yesterday, he wasn't even winning his duels. I think he I think he lost like three ground duels and two aerial duels or something. So he he did not have a performance a good performance even by his own standards. So what do you see structurally as a way we can uh, sort that? I don't mean necessarily take Rob Holding out of the team, but that's a that's a possibility. If you're doing that, how are you doing that? From a coach's perspective, I want to focus on the positives. I want to look forward to Southampton. I want to be like, right, how do we actually <laughs> deal with this? And what would you do mm. from a coach's perspective? I'm interested. So I think um, part of the issue uh, with Rob is actually clearly defining the problem about what's happening with Arsenal. And I kind of made a little tweet in the Twitterverse trying to address that because I think right now what people are doing is maybe not understanding that the player that plays in a particular zone plays it a particular way. And for example, I think one of the biggest microcosms of this is basically looking at Granit Xhaka in terms of what his role, the Xhaka role might be. And people have always looked at recruitment to try to replicate what they see. And we're kind of just talking off air about if you are not able to see something happening, you struggle to see maybe the solution. So the one thing that I looked at West Ham, for example, in kind of isolation, when you have a look at, the reverse fixture in terms of at home, our defensive line height was something like 60 meters. And when you have a look at the defensive line height in this fixture at the London Stadium, it was 44. Now, that's almost a 20 meter defensive line difference. And in its microcosm, again, there's not like home and away we choose to defend deeper or not. There isn't a difference. Our way of playing and our principles of playing are going to be the same. But this is an example of how personnel playing a particular zone affects your principles of play very much. And, you know, you can't assume that the way that you're playing is going to be replicated by players that don't have the same quality as the players that you're asking of it. So firstly, for me, there's a big central compactness issue in the current Arsenal team right now. And it's kind of emphasized by that difference in the defensive line height. As soon as you make that line height less small. You increase the spaces between your lines, whether it be defense, midfield, or attack. That's just the natural 
issue with having um, a defensive line that is deeper, let's say, when you look at a Manchester United or other teams. So immediately that's a problem because when you increase the distances that you have to defend, you demand more from your players. And when you do that, you basically ask them to do a lot more things than had you close the distances. And that's something that Arsenal did extremely well at the beginning half of the season. When you talk about why our defensive line was only second to Man City, the reason that Mikel changed that and the players that allowed us to do it is because we wanted to make this pitch as small as possible from an attackive point of view so that you can reduce the distance to goal. But from a defensive point of view, it's incredibly important because you reduce the amount of running that you're asking your players to do. So even if you implement a press and it's very strong and it's very fervent, you're reducing the amount of distances for them to run by shrinking the space and kind of condensing play. So when you employ a Rob Holding, what does that essentially do? Well, what happens is players are a lot more conservative in their off-the-ball press to avoid Rob Holding being isolated wide in 1v1 channels. When you look at William Saliba and Gabriel, what is the big strength of these two awesome athletes? Forget their on-the-ball portion for a minute. Defensively, what they allow us to do is they allow us to basically commit more bodies forward because they feel comfortable defending the channels on their own. And that is a huge thing. With Rob Holding, you can't do that. So players naturally will want to be near Rob because they understand that if they were to leave him isolated, he's somebody that maybe doesn't make the right decision. He's over-aggressive at times. And there are also issues with him taking himself out of the defensive line. He gets drawn in to places where he shouldn't be. And so what you're noticing is a more conservative Odegaard, a more conservative Ben White on the right-hand side. You're noticing players that are staying deeper, and the line, therefore, is yep. going to be deeper as a result. So that's it's the that first thing. that knock-on effect. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and even in possession, lastly, Rob slows the progression. It's not even so much that Rob is horrific technically, which, by the way, I can get into, but that's not, that's not the point. The point is Rob delays his next pass. And so what you find is Rob will take two or three extra touches, and by that point, you're restricting the area and the space where you can receive. And so you're not having people receive in higher areas of the pitch. What's the result? Players drop a lot deeper because they know Rob doesn't have the passing range to find them between the lines. So then you're looking at somebody like a Gabriel Jesus, who really should be at the top of the line, dropping into the pivot. And people are eulogizing for Jesus dropping into the pivot. But I'm sitting there as a coach screaming at my screen saying, this is ridiculous. This is not something that your striker should be doing, false nine or not. And what it actually tells you is that your interior options, your eights in effect, are not comfortable receiving between the lines if you're asking your striker and your attackers to do that job. Because something's not, not happening. And so, of course, you're going to have people that want to fix that issue. So when you combine those two things, by the way, guys, like the consequences, it's just a lot easier to defend as an opposition when your attackers and everybody's being sucked in deeper, you're asking basically your attackers just to be front-footed and they can cover more players. And when you don't have the attackers that you normally have in your front line, you can't stretch the opposition line. So it becomes a lot easier to defend. You leave a much bigger hole in the middle of the park because now all your players are deeper and they can't receive. And you effectively play in a lot smaller spaces when you shouldn't be in build-up. Whereas defensively, we're playing in larger spaces. So that's why you get the basketball game. Right. And I think that's the balance that we are not striking. Um, and I want to maybe give you guys a chance to talk about solutions, but that is the tactical problem that basically Arsenal are facing. And there's ways that we can replicate it to squeeze the space defensively, but also increase the space offensively. I think that's a really important point that not a lot of people understand. It's not the same in both phases, and you're asking different duties in both phases. I think that's bang on, and, you, and you've highlighted the the issue so brilliantly because it is that knock-on effect and it's and it's managing space really is that is the headline hi brad <laughs> hello sorry shaggers <laughs> i was talking before brad like we're looking for solutions look we know what we know um we know we God, this we weekend hit you hard you're really you're really going through it are you okay no my voice is my, my upset. no i know i'm just taking the piss out of you um you ready do you want to hear my range really uh it's rough Rough. Um, yeah and I was also I'm in Rome this weekend I'm on holiday um, and uh, it just ruined my weekend not gonna lie (laughs) I went to go and watch um, Roma Udinese yesterday uh, in the Serie A 
um, which was fascinating, by the way, like watching difference between Serie A and Premier League and stuff and watching how teams play is so much more broken play and just horrible football, to be honest. But anyway, we'll get to that. We're talking about solutions. We're talking about... Um, we're talking about how, how we find a way around this while my Siri kicks off. We're talking about how we find a way around this and how we, how we deal with this. And there's a number of different ways that we could possibly look at this. And, 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 and ultimately, it does come down to, uh, not completely, but uh, because I think there's a certain mental side of things. I think there's a physical side of things. I think there's a technical side of things. But I think a lot of that can be brought down to the knock-on effect of Rob Holding's quality and how that reduces the ability of our other players to play at the, their capacity. I think that's a, probably a, a fair enough, maybe, I, I'm, I'm, I'm possibly people disagree with me, a decent proportion of what's going wrong, right? So are we saying, um, Brad, I'm interested in your take on this, are we saying stick in a rural Walters at right back and bring Ben over to, to the centre? Are we saying stick Jorginho in with Partey at right back? Are we not wanting to change personnel at all? And we're asking for a better performance from Rob Holding. I think what George outlined fundamentally is a, is a problem with a profile. It's someone who can't defend space in the same way that Saliba can. It's someone who doesn't have the same on-ball quality. And it's someone who, when he isn't providing the dual-winning capacities that we know Rob Holding, it's his game and it's, it's the best thing he can do. When he's not doing all those things, Brad, like... What's the solution? <laughs> like, yeah, do we stick in is... a rural Walters? And this is the thing. So, and, and sorry to, to try and answer the question before you actually, I've, I've let you answer it. But the rural Walters thing, <laughs> people are saying like, oh, but you don't want to stick in a 20-year-old, whatever he's a 19-year-old into this situation. And I'm going, okay, fine. But like, he's not 14. He's been training with the first team. He's a, he's a guy who probably wants this opportunity. And if he comes in, I don't think anyone's going to blame him if he has a bad performance against Southampton on Friday and comes off at halftime. I don't think anyone's going to write him off. And I think mentally, if he's not prepared to just play 45 minutes of Premier League football because we need someone who can who can do who can control a football, not to be mean to Rob, but you know who can who's a lot better technically. I do worry about that as well. I'm like, if he can't do that, then what are we doing with him? But anyway, maybe I'm maybe I'm expecting too much, and we're putting him in a situation that isn't fair. But anyway, let me let me stop speaking. And let me actually let you answer the question. Um, I think we lost our our first solution to the problem in Zinchenko. When you in in ha not having that second controller on the pitch, he's so vital for the way that we play. And having the kind of shackle on the team's ankle of Rob Holding is 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 kind of what I saw being a you know, a massive, massive downfall for us today. But uh, uh, not today, yesterday even. But um, a big thing that also I, I think we have to take a look at ourselves is we allowed them back into the game. We 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 played well enough for 20 minutes to still be 2-0 up and to still be playing them off the park with Rob Holding. Um, I think I think a lot of the... I, I Rob Holding is definitely the problem because he is restricting the way that we play but that shouldn't have had an effect against West Ham I, I'll accept I'll accept this against Liverpool do you know what I mean Liverpool have phenomenally talented players they're a great they're a great squad who should not be anywhere near where they are but we were 2-0 up against the team who you know is is battling for relegation and, and not battling well so do you and not we, think we need to change anything it's just a more um, of a I don't think we need to rush and knee-jerk knee-jerk change something for Southampton because it's again it's it's Southampton. I'm not I'm not particularly and also there is there is one thing to say that this was a massively a game about momentum for me and if they don't get that first bullshit penalty they don't score just before half time. We don't go into the break at 2-1. It, it changes the outline and changes the kind of ecosystem of the game. Um, I think there's there's stories within that. If we want to talk about how we can reach our kind of max playing power, then it's definitely a conversation about, okay, put Ben White in at centre-back and Raw Walters at right-back, or, you know, bring Saliba back in or, or, or those kinds of conversations. But 
we should have been good enough to beat a team that has what uh, that that is not playing well, that is disjointed, just disjointed, that's been fractured all season, that's you, you know really struggling for it. It shouldn't. It shouldn't take every, and this has been one of my main criticisms about um, Arteta at, at several points of his tenure at Arsenal, is it should not take us having 11 out of 11 players that we want on the football pitch available for us to beat these teams. West Ham are not good. They didn't, for me, like they did okay yesterday but they're not a good footballing team we allowed them to get on top of us and uh, there were so many points where I was just screaming at my phone in my dressing room and pissing all of the people in the show off just like aching for us to just put a foot on it and pass it around the back for 10 minutes just get comfortable with the ball play around even if we're not looking for incision just to gain that sense that we have the ball again and then breed that confidence moving forward I think that this hurts much more than the Liverpool game because they aren't good and we allowed this to happen to ourselves. And I, as much as I think it, it happens for the reasonings that George says about the way that it restricts our play and the way that the press has to be completely different and we're asking people to run more. But I think this game also happens because we started playing, and I've seen this said on Twitter and I, I agree with it, we started playing at 2-0 up like we were 4-0 up and that was game, set and match. And they they gained ground, they gained confidence, and they and they gained those yards back on us. And then we took our most dangerous player off the pitch. I, I, I you know, it's difficult to find a solution to this game that isn't just play. Do you know I do what I mean? Hear, I, I do hear you. I do hear you. And I think I, I think the things that you outline are. Um, are valid and I think are at play. I think I think uh, there there probably was a little bit of confidence uh, coursing through us that, that made us play in a certain way. I think you're probably right in a certain way about um, you know I thought West Ham would set up terribly and and, and perhaps it, it kind of uh, especially at the beginning they managed to sort themselves out a little bit. But you know the, the spaces they're getting they were jumping in they were because they weren't pressing so they were jumping in early and then they were disrupting their lines. We we're getting so much space they were like a little bit too compact for me. All sorts of issues, right? But I think there must be a reason, structural reasons that we can identify that we've seemed to, in two consecutive games, go up to 2-0 and just not be able to kill the game. There must be structural reasons for that. And I have a look at how we're playing and I have a look at the reason we can't put our foot on it and control a game. It's because I don't think Rob can do that. And, and I, I feel bad putting it all on Rob Holding. It's not fair enough. But it's it's more about, for me, it's about the... I guess maybe it's the response to him in the team from other people, from your Sackers, from your Erdogan's, from your Ben Whites, the people on his side. I don't think it's a coincidence that Rob Holding has been quiet and Saka and, and, and um, Erdogan and White and stuff have been quiet. I think when you have someone who isn't as good on the ball, who isn't, is, is so slow in their actions, who's taking three or four extra touches at, at certain points or taking one, certainly one or two extra touches at times. I think it's the impact that that has. And then what that means is we can't then actually go out and, as you say, Brad, put our foot on it. I don't think we can, I don't think we have the capacity to control a game in that way without being at 100%. And once we score two, a couple of goals, I feel like we sort of go, okay, well, the game's kind of won. So maybe there's a bit of confidence in there. But I think then the idea that, you know, come on, let's just kill the game. I'm not sure we have the capacity to do that with the way we're currently set up. I think we do with Saliba. And, and maybe I'm over-indexing the holding thing. I mean, George, I, I, I don't know what you think about that. But but I, I, that's that's my honest feeling is that I I feel as though this this idea that we just needed to kill the game or we were we were overconfident or playing 4-0 football or 2-0 football, I'd probably agree a bit. But then I'm like, okay, well, how would you fix that? And I would say the way we fix that can't be achieved at the moment with Rob Holding in the team. But it was achieved for the first ten minutes of this game. No, but no, but Brad, I'm, sa- I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying that we, when we came out and we were at our hundred percent top level, we can carry a Rob Holding. When we score two goals and we need to control the game a bit more rather than be front front footed, just put our foot put our foot on it and you know just select the right passes, be in the right spaces, not allow them a sniff. I don't believe Rob Holding is the guy who can help you out in that game state. But I don't think 2-0 at, at 10 or 
10 or 15 minutes is the time to put your foot on it. I'm talking about when it when it came to half time and we went in at 2-1, like there, there's an opportunity to to try and just calm the lads down a bit. But I think that for me, what seemed to happen is we backed off a bit after scoring the second, thinking the game was won and thinking that West Ham weren't going to have anything for us. And it just so happens that they did today. I think that the way that a game isn't won at 2-0 is is very much, especially if it's 2-0 in the first half, an easy scoreline to turn around. It's not, you know, how many, that has happened a lot this season. We, we did it against Bournemouth in, a, in less than a half of football. 2-0 is yeah. not as safe and comfortable and secure as it should be. And when I say killing off a game, I think that the mistake that was made is, um, I th- and, I, and I think it, it again is because of Rob Holding, is that we scored those two goals and we went, West Ham are shit. They're not going to have anything for us, but we could leave ourselves exposed if we continue to attack this kind of, with this kind of veracity. So let's stop. Let's back up. Let's back off a bit. We'll, we'll calm down a bit. And it just gave them space and it gave them inches and it gave them yards. And I, I don't, I don't think that, that was necessary for us to take our yeah. foot off the pedal in the way that we did. George, I'll come, I just want to come to you in a second, but, I, I think, well, firstly, I think West Ham grew into the game. So as much as they were, the re- I think part of the reason that it's kind of being ignored that we were so brilliant in those first 20 minutes was because they were shocking. They were, they were absolutely all over the place. So they did grow into the game. And then I think what is possibly, and I could be getting you wrong, Brad, but what you're describing is a kind of kill off the game with 3,000 passes, which I don't believe we can do with Rob Holding. But George, I'll come to you. And maybe, and maybe that's not what you're saying, but yeah. Look, I think that there are two problems where one, you critique the mentality of the team where one to a man, they lacked conviction from, let's say, the 30th minute to the end of the match. That That is true. But then I equally think that Rob Holding on his own has such a detrimental effect to the way that we play and sustain pressure that despite a really good 10 minutes, the problem is you will never be able to get consistent 90s. That, I think, is the overall problem. And when you index that over eight games, let's say, you're going to be playing margins as opposed to a a proper way of playing. And and that's the issue with a Rob Holding, right? So I think Brad's completely correct to demand that when you're 2-0 up, you keep that scoreline in that chasm. But then I look at it and I say, okay, well, why did we fall apart in both Anfield? And why did we fall apart both here? Even though that we put ourselves in very advantageous situations, it's because this team plays in moments. It knows that it can't commit itself to the press for 90 minutes because of those Rob Holding consequences. Because if they do, they're going to be caught in transition. And and that, I think, is the problem. And then when you look at the end of the game and you find Granit Xhaka being moved to left back, by the way, which again, for me, I don't have a problem with it because the zone that he's in, it's actually good for his qualities. But what it does do is it frustrates me that I see that later on in the game, but then it's paired with taking off our most effective player. So I'm not annoyed with that movement but I'm annoyed then that you didn't make the system uh comfortable for that so you clearly see that Shaka can do it it's not a matter of you know Mikel not believing that we can input a granite Shaka in that zone he did it so he knows that it's a viable option but then why do we force Kieran Tierney to play that role for what 65 70 minutes it doesn't make sense to me so it comes down to essentially how do we solve the spacing issue, where defensively, we're defending smaller spaces again, because that's been our success. How do we do that? Well, you in, you put athletes in your back line that make those defensive spaces small. It's really that simple. And how do we make the offensive spaces, um, you know, not as big, let's say? How do we not have Zin, uh, Jesus drop into the pivot to help us build up and get out? How do we keep him higher up the pitch so that he can receive in more dangerous areas? How can we not keep Saka periphery, who also had a poor game, individually? But how do I get Saka more involved into the game? We've got to get him closer to goal. How do you do that? You don't ask them to drop deep to help build up. So there's two issues there. How would I do it personnel-wise instead of just talking in theory? I've said it for a while. I do think that Thomas Partey, this idea that he must be in the middle of the park to extract influence... 
I don't agree with it personally. I think that the last couple of games have shown, even in his central position, let's say, he had a poor game individually. But the spaces, if you look at how he received with Declan Rice in that turnover, yep, poor piece of play to turn and move. But who's around him? If anybody would pause the video, that for me shows there's nobody within a 10, 15-yard radius of him. That's a problem, structurally. To receive that deep, that's a problem. And for me, that's the part when I talk about in possession, the spaces are far too big. When you look at our most successful games, Zinchenko's right there. And it's not just Zinchenko, but there is an option next to Thomas Partey within a 15-meter radius. So that's the problem. So firstly, what I would do is, I guess, I would move Ben White in the back with Gabriel, get our two athletes back. I would move Thomas Partey to a pseudo right back position, and I would flip dynamics. What we currently do is we ask our left back to invert. Ask your right back, in quotes, to invert. So Thomas Partey isn't playing right back. He's playing in the middle of the park in the same way that Zinchenko is not a left back. He plays in the middle of the park. So you do that. But what that means is if you're asking a Kieran Tierney to be a high and wide option now, you cannot ask Granite Shaka to be the one making off the ball runs between the center back. You need to slot him in next to the pivot. And of course, to replace Thomas Partey, who is now left and is on the right, you need to have somebody that can put his foot on the ball. And that has to be Jorginho at this point. And so for me, your back five would be Gabrielle Ben White. And then you would have Granite Shaka and Thomas Partey flank Jorginho so that you don't have to worry about his lack of athleticism. And you've got players close to him that are able to give himself an outlet. So you're going to reduce the problem with spacing immediately. You've got people that can defend wide in isolation. And you're going to be adding a person in the buildup to basically reduce the distances and keep Gabriel Jesus high up the pitch. Now, I think when you look at what happened yesterday, no Jesus. Uh, you know, after, I don't know, 20 minutes was a problem to us taking impetus. Um, the personnel decisions, no Zinchenko, was a problem to how we play. But I always try to question, if we're playing a left back that's inverted, I don't know why saying a right back that's inverted is changing the system. In fact, it's not. All you're doing is switching the focus of where you attack. The system is actually the same. It's the exact same. The principles are the same. And so I think that for me, is a big reason for why we struggle to get out. And I, and I really would like to see that athleticism in the back. What would I like to see up front? I think that you put a lot more effort on Martin Odegaard to provide that overlap in that system when you've got a more inverted right back. It doesn't matter where, but you're asking a lot of your interior to do that if you want to get Bakayo next to goal. It is why I have looked at other options that are central running power that are more effective at that role. Uh, but again... It is a lot of change. Again, it is something that we needed to struggle with. But I don't think that as long as Rob Holding finishes the season with us, and even if we get Saliba for one or two games of the last eight, what kind of Saliba are you getting? <laughs> like, that's another question that people are asking. Like, it's not a matter of just putting him in, it, in at this point. He's going to be operating at 60%. I think we all understand it's not medically good for him to play. So the, the, the Saliba that you're getting, is he going to be able to chase and defend in the same way? I don't think so. I, I really think in possession we might benefit, but that asking him to basically be that athlete is how we got he's going to get injured. So I think we do need to find a plan B. That's why I'm looking at something changing like this, because I think second balls, the chasm in the middle of the park is a problem. It's not ideal. And no matter what solution that we end up doing, you're going to look at the team and say, well, there's a hole there. There's a hole there. There's a hole there. So for me, what's important is making sure we get back to having a high line. I don't want to see the high line being 20 meters of difference. I don't know if you guys saw that, but that is a huge average change. Like it's not a small change. It's huge. And I do think that is the biggest change that's made us successful this season. Like when I look at it, people always like to look at individuals. I have felt that the press is the MVP of this season. So for me, I think that's what suffocates teams. That gives you the best chance of sustaining pressure. So if I was in Mikel Arteta's position, I would be doing the maximum to make sure that our central compactness is as short and as resolute for as long as possible. If you're going to play in margins, your score lines are going to reflect that. You're going to have big leads that get blown out. You're going to have times when it works. And then you say, well, it worked here. Why can't it work in the future? 
well, it's because you're you're relying on margins. You're gambling here. Like, can can the twenty minutes of great play outlast the eighty or the seventy or the sixty that you're inevitably going to have to be under the cosh for? Can can you do that? That just for me is not a gambling solution. Yeah, no, yeah, a lot of sense. I think um, thinking on my feet here. I mean, I wonder whether is there a, a Kivior in the three situation where Partey rolls round and inverts in the sort of three, two, there just, there's, there's got to be something we can do that isn't, that isn't, you know, that, that can help the central compactness that can close those distances that can push our line up, that can change it because ultimately you're right. Like that is, that is the crux of it. If we're sitting 20 yards further back, we're going to, we're going to take more. We're not going to squeeze them. We're not going to force them long. They're going to be able to build up. That's the reason we've been playing so well this season. Brad, how much do you put on Mikel Arteta for yesterday in terms of substitutions? Because George and I were chatting on the instant reaction. Um, and I think there's, you know, he had to change something sooner, in my opinion. And I don't know, as we've been saying, I don't think any of us are saying this is the solution. You know, that, you know, this is, Kyle, can't you see it? Oh my God, you idiot. But if you, if we can sit here saying, well, that's the problem, and here is you know three or four different ways you could possibly solve it. Why do you think he didn't move sooner? And yeah, I mean, what were your thoughts on his his substitutions and his kind of in game management? One of Mikel's biggest uh, positives, but can also be one of his biggest downfalls, is he's very strong willed and strong minded about his ideas. And I think that he will go to the death to prove that they are right. And if he has a game plan that he thinks is going to work. He's going to leave it as long as he physically can. And that today just became his undoing. Um, the hum- not the hu- humility is the wrong word, but sometimes in life we have to admit that the things that we, ap- we have planned for ourselves are not working out and just fucking change it. And that is something that he, he needs to learn because that's something that's been a problem last season. It's been a problem the season before and it's been a problem this season, you know, and the fact that we have been so effervescently good has covered up that problem for a long time but it has reared his head um i don't don't know what the fix is uh i don't think the fix is taking off your most dangerous player and leaving on a player on the right wing who is not having a good game by any stretch i feel that saka coming off was the first move rather than jesus i do not understand the the logic in 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 the in the choice there, um, I also think that there's a bit of a conversation to be had about why we were playing a full strength back line at Sporting, because that's that's also where this has gone wrong in going and and I, this is also very results based because we obviously went out of that cup competition, but I think a lot of us at the time were screaming out fuck the Europa League and concentrate on the Premier League because this is an unbelievable to, to be fair, opportunity. Mate, like I, I don't want to get caught in the... And I want you to finish your point. But to be fair, he definitely got injured in Fulham when he fell. Like, the injury... I, I know him starting. People may think that worsened. It wouldn't. Like, it would aggravate it. But the same would have happened in training. I think the big incident is Fulham when he goes to claim for the cross with Aaron Ramsdale and he falls on his tailbone. Like, that's the source of the injury. So even if he played or he did it, like not playing him in sporting wouldn't have saved him, let's say. Like the no. damage had already been done. But I, I agree it with you. It might not have saved like, him. Why put an orange player in? I, I, yeah, I get that. Why, why put an orange? It's, it, it's, it's that. It's, and it's not a question of saving him because I think after that Fulham incident, he's obviously going to have to spend some time on the sidelines. But it felt like... It felt like a, mis, a misjudgment of priorities in hindsight, in losing Saliba for the sporting game, for the Liverpool game, for the... What was the game before Liverpool? Palace? Before... Leeds? Leeds. Palace and Leeds. For Palace, Leeds, um, Liverpool and Sporting. Losing them for those three games, I, I just think that it was a smarter decision to, like George has said, not put in an orange player and aggravate it to the point now. Because, we, like, he might be out for the rest of our season. So putting a player in in a match that realistically isn't 
if we'd have won that game, it would have been great. Cool, we're still in the Europa League, but it wasn't a cup final. It wasn't something that's changing the course and the destiny and the history of this season. Because the focus in in the mainstream, and I think the focus for the team was obviously going to be winning the Premier League. That's the more illustrious trophy. So I just I I put I put blame on him for for that because I think that was just a bit silly, and I think that's also coincided with really bad luck with the Tommy Asu injury. He obviously wouldn't have foreseen that, and maybe has kind of. And this is pure conjecture, Claxon, but maybe he's gone, okay, I'll play Saliba in this game, we'll lose him for a bit, and then we can go to White and Tommy Asu. And Tommy Asu has that nasty fall and is out. But I just I don't understand that decision. And I don't understand the substitutions yesterday. I don't um sometimes things don't work. We need to change them. And I think that it's another it's another conversation that we're having about the issue of why aren't we changing things early enough and why are we taking off our most dangerous player and also why is Bakayo Saka playing 90 minutes when he's not when he, when he is not affecting anything yeah i think i think the conversations about why we're not changing things only happen when things go wrong but it is a theme uh, of Arteta's tenure, but that's because you only have. I think that's, you only have to change things when they go wrong. That's why. That, that's that's why it's only a conversation. No, no, no. Around yeah, that. yeah, but but as in, we don't think about substitutions until they go wrong. It's the same as goalkeepers. Yeah. You don't think you don't think about until they make a howler. So, like, I, 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 I do, but I, but I do agree with you, Brad, in the sense that I do think he is loyal to his principles at times to a point of concern. Um, because I think, you know, there is some adaptation that can be done at times. Um, and I think yesterday was one of those days where you just sometimes, and I wonder whether it would have been those days where you just chuck on a big striker and lump balls into the box at some point, you know, it might be one of those days and who knows, maybe, maybe he wishes he had the opportunity to do that. I want to come to Saka. Um, cause I think that's an interesting discussion to have. George, what do you think it is? I put something out yesterday. I, I suppose... I don't want to project the physicality thing because I think it's very it's a very easy thing to say in the sense that he's played a lot of football, so we just go, oh, he's tired. We don't know that, of course. We don't have the the data. We don't have his, um, you know, we don't have his uh, his vest thing that you know giving us data on our iPads as Albert Stoivenberg does or whatever it is. But I suppose what I can say is I see him losing a lot more jewels. I see him being less physically robust. I see him being a, a bit more lightweight. And I think that combined with a lack of ability to affect the game and a seeming languidness in his actions makes me concerned about his fatigue. Now that could be wrong, but that's what I feel is going on at the moment. Um, but yeah, what do you think? Um, I struggle because I feel as though three games ago we were eulogizing about him potentially having some of his best performances of the season. So in terms of the the in-between, I, I do think that he's suffering more so by what's behind him than individually being out of sorts. Uh, I think this was a bad game, though. I think it's one of the worst games I've seen from Saka individually, um, like since he's been in the team, period. Like I, I just don't think he was involved. And I must say... He has got so much credit in the bank that if you're going to have one player in the squad not want to hero ball and do his all and basically say, listen, can somebody pick up the slack for me? You're going to say Saka deserves that out of anybody else in the squad. But equally, I do have to say, I think he was poor. I, I don't know if it was necessarily fatigue doing that because I think what was wrong with him was beyond just being slow to actions. Like I felt he himself was purposefully very peripheral he chose not to get involved and I think for me that's not fatigue like I, I think fatigue for me is maybe an auspicious touch somebody being slow to a marker you making the run but you're not quite getting there like that is something that I associate with fatigue for example but for me he was just peripheral he chose not to get involved he chose to stay touchline for example right like I think those decisions for me spoke why? to a player why, why, why do you think he'd do that I think that he did that because we lacked an ability to create width on the pitch. 
And so I think what his solution was, everybody is crashing. Jesus is coming near. Odegaard's coming near. There's nobody providing width in this team. I'm going to stay wide, hopefully, to stretch the back line so West Ham don't feel enamored to press up in the way that they did. That's my kind of thinking about what he was doing. Do I think it was right? No. Like, I, I think he was wrong to do that. I think Mikel would have loved that in theory, but I do think that he needed to get closer because Odegaard was not able to get going in a build-up perspective. That's another one. I think that is escaping criticism. He wasn't connecting the middle of the park. Um, and so, and even when we were good, um, the best moments in that 10 minutes, by the way, were us keeping that width and keeping us being very compact offensively. That That's what was really good about the first 10 minutes. and. I think as the game went on and as West Ham got more confident, whatever you want to attribute it to, he became more peripheral because he felt that staying wide would help him get into the game a little bit more than it would coming deep when everybody else was coming deep to support and not getting luck. So, but do I agree with him? No. Like, I I think that's the logic for what he did, but I don't think it was the right call because ultimately the players that came deep were not successful in helping us get out. So the result was the same. We couldn't get him the ball. He was peripheral. and. Um, in the end, you just ended up not being involved in the game. So I, I think that's what it is for me. I think if you fix the middle of the park and those distances, you see a more involved Saka, period. Um, but I, I do think him, for example, getting the penalty was not something I was a fan of. I'll be honest. Like I was in group chats saying, Jesus, take this. Please don't give it to Saka. You could tell from the first minute he was peripheral. Whatever was oh, wrong. I knew it. I knew it was going wide. I couldn't. I can't tell yeah. you why, but the body language, the body shape, the. But you know what it is, Brad. I think I it's just... because you weren't confident in his play beforehand. Like when a player is not on it, and I don't sharp. think he was confident as well. Do you know what no. I mean? I think that he knew that it wasn't a good day at the office for him. And at those moments, you have to make on-field decisions to go with. Like Gabby's on a run of what? What would have been what two braces in a row? I just, and I think this is also, I'm reticent to get into it because it's very, it, this is very results based because if he scores the penalty, no matter how peripheral he was, I don't know how much of my opinion of him actually missing the penalty is because he did miss the penalty. Do you know what I mean? But I just, it felt like a, so, uh, somebody said this really well actually, and it was James Alcott and it's about the Rashford penalty when we lost the Euros and it was that when Rashford did his little juttery run up, the whole crowd went like, Ooh, as if like, Oh fuck, like this is a bit dodgy. And that, that, that kind of shit transmits to the players. And I'll admit when I saw Saka pick up the ball, I was like, Ooh, I'm not entirely confident of where this is going. And you know, this is a player that's scored however many, he's scored every single penalty since missing his one of the Euros. Um, but I think that you have to sometimes allow the hero of the story in Bakayo Saka to to not be the hero and not and not it's not to take that opportunity away from him, but to kind of go listen, you know, the next one. There's going to be more opportunities. There's going to be more goals. There's going to be more penalties. Sit this one out because things aren't going well. And I think that goes to your on-field captains to kind of have those moments. And we just didn't do that. But It's a tough call because Bakayo Saka yeah. has been the superstar of the team. And so despite yeah. not playing badly, when you look at it from a dressing room seniority standpoint, your superstars are going to take the penalties. Like I'm fully aware of that as a coach, as whatever. You, you know that they want that responsibility. And 99% of the time they take it and they do it well. That's why they're your superstars. And that's why they carry your team. But for me... I am, as a coach, personally, like I play a lot into how a player shows me their attitude through their actions. And and what I saw was Jesus was somebody that during the game from minute one to when he was taken off was somebody that was bright, looking to affect change. And when there was a problem, offering a solution. When I saw a problem, Mikhail wasn't offering that. So immediately that just tells me, is his mindset in the right space to really take this? Now, does this mean he's off penalties for me? No, but I just think like in the Cosm, there should be a player decision at the point in time who has got the right kind of mentality in the moment to take it. And you've got two or three players that can take it. I don't think it should be as regimented that one player takes these actions no matter what. 
I never like that binary thinking. And, and I think it's very possible that your best player, like Bakayo could take the next five, six in a row, and I have no problem with it. But the problem is recognizing, look, if your best player right now is not having a good game, it's not logical to have him take one of the more important, um, you know, actions of the game. Actions of the game, yes. And and when he, I, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, but Bakayo was peripheral, and what he was doing was actually hiding. And I hate to say that word, and that doesn't mean he's shit, and he's not this, and he's not that. He was just hiding in this game, and I don't think you want that in a player that needs to show his worth in the moment. That for um, me is where I have an issue for. I'm clipping that up. That's going everywhere, George. Everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this just I, I, George VAFC hates Saka. Um. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the thing is, George, I, I, I actually completely agree with you. But try telling Saka, <laughs> try telling him in the moment. I, That's I what really... I mean. It's impossible. You're not going to do yeah. it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, for so. sure. Yeah, but Gabriel but Jesus then... has won four Premier Leagues. Just, I think, as like we forget sometimes, Bukayo Saka is a young man who is still very much growing and finding his standing in the game. And if a player who is on form, like Gabriel, I'd understand if it was Martinelli, because they're very much coming from the same level, the same place. Saka is much more higher in profile for this team. But Gabriel Jesus has won four Premier Leagues. Like, as much as I think Saka is an amazing player and definitely one of the best two players in our team, sometimes you need... Like you, you need some humility to realize you're not the person in that moment, and you need somebody to show you that. And we just didn't have that on the pitch, and that comes from a lot of different sides, from Mikel making the wrong substitutions at the wrong times to, you know, not changing things when we could. But I mean, both both of the goals are just calam. Like it's just stupidity. We're having this massive conversa- conversation about structure changes, and if Rob Holding decides to shove a firework up his ass and actually fucking run up, Bowen isn't onside. And if the referee had gone to fucking spec savers, the penalty's not a penalty. So do you know what I mean? It, we're we're having these grandiose conversations, and it's two bozo moments from two bozos that have fucked us. <laughs> There's no leaders in this team. There's no fight. There's no spirit. Where's the Arsenal that I know and love? Williams, Bergovic, Michu, Fellaini, get the money out, buddy. Um, there's so much more to discuss. We didn't even get to the incidents, but hopefully we'll come to that more in News and Views. But we will see you after this. News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views, where we give you all the news and all your views, but mostly ours. Thank you to those of you who are in the Different Knock Members Club. Join at patreon.com forward slash Knock and buy me some cough medicine. And get access to ad-free versions of all of our content, including main and bonus podcasts, instant reactions, the rewatch, and bonus video content for just three pounds a month. And for what has worked, buy me a coffee. You can buy me a coffee. The links are in the show description. We've had some questions. Um, where was it? It was a good question. Yes, here from Maku- Makumi Wanjohi. I've absolutely smashed that. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, mate. Arteta's Arsenal this season and last tends to drop points in a glut of matches and then go on a run of wins. Is this caused by technical problems or more softer issues? And in the softer issues, I do want to discuss that penalty incident, Brad. It's it's not a penalty. It's not a penalty. I don't know how anyone can watch it and call it a penalty. Paqueta's touch is horrendous. He sees the ball going and he throws his arms up in the air before contact is even made. Like he's done his best Tom Daly impression and respect to him, give him the gold medal. But it, it just isn't. If that's a penalty, like fucking hell, we, we would be seeing multiple a game. It's it's farcical for me that it was given. I, I cannot believe it. Yeah. George, is it a handball in the build up or no? Yes. Um, his hand moves he moves his towards arm towards him. the ball yeah 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 yeah. no it, it's yeah. definitely a handball um, and they just made a lame excuse that they couldn't pull it back because it wasn't directly involved in the goal that's like the rules with VAR but it 100% <laughs> literally is um, it's obviously involved in the goal if it doesn't course, happen the goal doesn't happen so there you go of, yeah. of course it's involved so like I don't know it's just I hate it because it's ridiculous but I, I do want to re-emphasize um, 
it's a stupid error referee-wise, but I'm also killing the team. Why is Thomas Partey receiving with no one near him in that position? I was was watching it just now, and Tierney... Tierney's in a, a traditional left back position when Sinchenko wouldn't 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 be there. It's that simple. It's that simple, really. And he shouldn't be receiving it in that position with absolutely no one near him. Uh, but I want to go back to the question, really, because because the softer issues. It does. Is it fair to say that we uh, every team and every fan probably thinks that their club is the one club that gets targeted? But I can think back to a number of decisions this season. I would say, what are the games we've lost? Liverpool, I think I, I think the refereeing was fine in that game. Um, Brentford, the, they didn't draw the lines. Brentford, they didn't draw the lines. That VAR decision, the, the, the decision yesterday, surely one of those. It's either not a penalty because he literally dives and Gabriel gets barely any contact. He's already diving before Gabriel comes in or it's a handball in the build-up or both, which is crazy to me. And I'm trying to think through all the, our other... Um, uh, bad results, but maybe I need to uh, look that up. But but like it just feels as though we've had a, a number of different situations this season where we've just had poor luck. Is that fair, or am I just being the biased? No, I don't think that's Arsenal unfair. Fan. I mean, if you if you if they draw the lines and they don't give this, we said this about the Liverpool game. Like when you score a goal at that moment, just before the half. Changes things. And it gives you emphasis and 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 like a different energy moving forward in the match. And if Liverpool don't get that Salah goal when they get it, and it, I, I think if they don't get this bullshit penalty when they get it, the, the game state's so completely different moving forward that the results are completely different. But... Um, I mean, if they draw the lines and this bullshit penalty isn't given, it's four points. Yeah. You know, that's uh, a lot. Yeah, I mean, City dropped points, yeah. City dropped points this year in the Man United game because of that. And it's another, it's another key Oh, the United, point of why United we one need. with Erdegaard with the disallowed goal. That's yeah, the one. United one with Erdegaard. But like, it's another key, yeah. key moment where the momentum of that Bruno Fernandes goal standing after Rashford is so clearly affecting play from an offside position causes Man City to lose the game we call these things soft factors but the confidence that Man United then had (laughs) to then go it's so fucking big and the confidence that it gave Liverpool was massive and the confidence that it gave West Ham to get that goal back when they didn't deserve it was unbelievable so they're they're soft factors but they play massive parts in these games Um, and it's it's just I hate the conversation because it's just bordering fucking ridiculous now that we have the most expensive the most prestigious the most sought after product in the fucking world we can't even watch half of the bastard because of some random blackout because I'm apparently going to go watch Dunstablian's FC and they can't even get the on-field decisions right anyway what how are we in this situation where are Dunstablian's FC where are they in the league fucking yeah, oh, fuck knows, mate. Probably fucked. I, I don't think I'm going to add too much more to what Brad said. It was very succinct and completely correct. I just think ultimately, um, when you are a team that hasn't been at the top of the game for as long as we have, it's factual that you're not going to get the respect um, from res- referees in that way. It's no uh, you know, wrong way to assume that fundamentally the most popular teams and the most successful teams do get the rub of the green quotes and air quotes on subjective decisions. That's just simply true. Um, And when you actually have a referee that was dismissed for not doing his job, I think you can't dismiss fans that want to say, is there a bias? Of course there's a bias. We all know that. I mean, we're we're beating around the bush. But of course there is. I mean, we saw that thing. They're all from fucking Manchester. That Danny Simpson (laughs) thing where the ref was like, ah, I want you guys to win. What? That was in 2016. Of Of course that's still going on. Of course course it's going on. So so for me, like, yeah, like, and and that's why I just kind of say, look, we're going to fight it. And we're not the only team here. I'll caveat it with this so that people don't get upset. We are not the only team that gets subject to bias. Um, Too late. But, I'm upset. But do we? Yeah, we do. But also, again, that's not the reason we, we lost the game. But it is the to, reason that West Ham got into the game. To come back to the question as well, it, it does feel like we lose games or drop points in sort of series of matches. There was kind of that Brentford-Everton period where we lost the series of points. 
And now it feels like this period's another another one. What is that? Is that? I mean, yeah. The, the problem is, is the first thing that happens is we all go to we all get on our Roy Keane soapboxes and go, "They got no mentality. They got they got no leaders in a team." But also, I do think that there is a um, a mental component, at least, to it. That once you've lost one, obviously, there's going to be a bit of doubt. I guess you just come out of your rhythm. You come out of that thing of like, we, we go and beat these, we go beat these, we go beat these. Oh, we've had that moment. We have to look at ourselves. We have to change training slightly. We have to look at things slightly differently, working on more of our flaws. And maybe it just, just slightly just slightly changes things. I mean, George, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be mentality when you look at how we handled last season and the previous seasons. But one thing that I don't think us as Arsenal fans want to talk about in reality is throughout Mikel's tenure, bar the FA Cup, has there been a time that we felt that we've achieved our objective? There yeah. is content, and there is context for it, um, but but we haven't. And no, it's true. That, it's bang on. That, that is absolutely something that plays a factor in it. And yeah. I do think it was a big reason, and not just to defend myself, but it was a big reason why I wasn't on the train with everybody as early as they were about the title. Because the question mark that I had – wasn't quality. The question mark was simply experience about mm. chasing versus leading. And yeah. I, I do think that is more of an issue than mental. Like we are a team that have won positions from losing positions the most in the league. We are. So I don't think it's a mentality in that way. I yeah. do think it's how we're able to approach leading a major title charge and being able to be put in a, an aggressive position. Cause if you actually look at the reasons why we've lost our objectives in every part of the season, Guys, we aren't chasing. We, we got there. All we had to do was continue form. You look at mm. it in terms of where we put ourselves in a position to top four. We were there. It wasn't like we were chasing to be there and we didn't have quite enough. No, no, no. It's always we the fucking stupid there. games as well. Do you know what it I mean? Is. And you look it's back the Everton's. Everton, Southampton's, the Palace. The, the list goes on. We all know them. I don't want to anger people. But fundamentally, if you've got a team that haven't done it, there's going to be a growing pain to get over the hump. And, you know, here, I'll, I'll put in an analogy to tie it up nicely uh, to basketball and maybe a really famous documentary. If everybody saw kind of the Michael Jordan one on Netflix, that's a really famous one. And one of the biggest things is getting over the hump of the Detroit Pistons. Now, they were both a very good team. There are people that are at the top of the hill. Did, were they a bad team the year before when they didn't do it? No, they gave them an, an insane run. But they had to fundamentally change their physicality over the summer to get over the hump and essentially wash them away. That's what they needed to do. This is what this Arsenal team need to do, where mentally they need to be able to be We dominant. need to wash Rob Holding and, away. Well, uh, you just killed my punchline, because that's literally what I was going to say. We need to wash away Rob Holding and the light. It's not just him, but that mentality needs to be washed away for us to get back to the top of the hill. We need to become bullies, and we can't start stop thinking that you know we deserve to be there like we need to dish it out one of my favorite so bullion ben white i want to hear loads of shit about his hairline and how he didn't have one i want to let's get him out <laughs> yeah like one of my favorite quotes in the documentary is michael jordan says i needed to put on weight because i wanted to throw my weight around a bit and i don't like it just for the physicality i like it for the mentality I want Bakayo Saka to say, listen, I want to kill you and not just be the nice guy because I am the person that is the best player in the world. And, and I want that mentality. And I just think this Arsenal team are working towards it. I, I don't think we're quite there. That has been the reason that I think we'll struggle. Does it mean that the title's over or any of that talk? No. It just means that in order for us to we're get over that We're still winning the hump, league, boys. It's still happening. Yeah. <laughs> it's still in our Maybe. hands. It's still in our hands. It's still in our hands, yeah. The the George, I think you're bang on. And I, I saw a, a quote yesterday, which I think is bang on as well, which is to be the man, you got to beat the man. And I'm like, yeah, like unfortunately, that's it. And you know, you are so right. And I think I think we were talking about it in the instant reaction as well. Plug um, the idea that you know, yes, we've always been progressing. We've always you know been showing signs of you know every single metric. You look at the line height. You look at the points per game, XG, whatever whatever metric you want to look at, we've been improving 100%. This is not to take away from that. But also every objective, apart from the FA Cup in that first season, we haven't got there. So we have to get over a line at some point and know what that feels like, know what it takes to do that. And I do think it's a significant thing. And I'll, I'll finish with this. I was talking yesterday to my mate. I'm staying with him, Rome. We're talking about Real Madrid. 
and he's a Liverpool fan. So he was talking about how when he was watching them line up for big the Champions up, League Andy. final, big up Andy. When we were when he was watching them line up for the Champions League final, he was just like they just look like they know they're going to win. And we were talking about this, and it's like Real Madrid, their fans are so call it entitled, call it whatever you want, but they have such a an idea that nothing except winning is acceptable that they booed Ronaldo. <laughs> they booed their top time, all, all-time goal scorer. They booed him because he wasn't performing. And what that does when you have that expectation, that culture at a club, from Perez, from, from the fans, from everyone, it means that you only attract people who are absolute killers. Absolute killers. People who, because if you don't, you won't survive in that Real Madrid cauldron. And therefore, what that means is, over time, you, you create those t- types of cultures and you end up winning Champions Leagues when you probably shouldn't. You end up winning three in a row. You end up with the record that Real Madrid have because their culture is just so ridiculous in terms of winning and, and you know and, and how and how how they set up their club. If you're not succeeding, you are out. Now, I you know I'm sure there's certain fans who disagree with me. I like the fact that Arsenal is a bit more of a family club, is a bit more forgiving at times, gives people chances. I like that. I don't think sport should always just be about well win or nothing else and no loyalty. But I do think. To, for us to go to the next level, we have to do the Jurgen Klopp carrier summer. We have to go, this is not good enough. You're good. You're very good. You're not good enough. You're not gonna, you're not gonna win as that title. You're not gonna be a killer. And so, you know, whatever happens this summer, I, I, I don't know. Whatever happens with, with the title, I don't know. But I hope in the summer we go, nah, Xhaka, like great player, but there is an upgrade there. I hope we I hope we just take that next step and go look this is there is another level to go here. We're doing very very well and I think our football is is never going to be a problem. I just think it's that next step of going like no no we need to just fucking get over that that hurdle. And it is it's the Detroit Pistons. You know, it's it is that it's exactly that. It's you're, you're bang on. So get Declan Rice. So get Scotty Pippen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get, no, get mate oh, De- Declan Rice. Caicedo, fucking, I don't know who else, some defender. Get loads of them. Get all the butt. Get everyone in. Dennis Rodman, Scotty Pippen, Michael Jordan. Get them all in. Yeah, let's leave Steve Kerr aside. Yeah, Steve (laughs) Kerr can fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Every single week, we get a question about Moises Caicedo and Rice. Arsenal fans are absolutely gagging for it. But we did see um, some talk sport stuff about Rice. I don't think it's even worth, worth discussing, is it? Let's just, let's move on, Brad. Let's do just it, shall we? Just buy both and let's go. Have we got time? Have we, Brad? For a little bit of Arsenal trivia, I think we do. Your question last time, you weren't here, George, but your question last time was about cult heroes. And I asked you, Emmanuel Abue and Nicholas Bentner are both cult heroes for Arsenal. But who made their debut appearance for Arsenal's first team first, and who left Arsenal last? Who made their debut appearance for Arsenal's first team first, and who left Arsenal last out of Emmanuel Bue and Nicholas Bentner? Please confer. Um, I feel like Bentner left last, but yeah. did Bue start? I, uh, yeah, because I, I seem to think of Bue... I mean, I remember him getting hooked quite early on in... Was he... Do you know what? This is Rogue. Was he part of the 2006 Champions League squad, the Bouet? He was, no? Because Listen, he struggled in 08, for sure. Yeah. It's not Alex, it's not it's Alex not. trivia. I think Ebue made his appearance first. That's what I think. I think he and made think his appearance Bentner, first and Bentner stayed. Yeah. So you're saying Abue came first and Bentner left last? Yes. You are bang on. Nicholas Bentner (laughs) made his first appearance for Arsenal on the 25th of October 2005 and left in the summer of 2014, which is mad. Emmanuel Abue, first appearance on the 9th of January 2005, left summer 2011. There you go. You You went to Galatasaray, I think. You love to see it. And the theme for this week was Marouane Shamak. And I'm asking you to name, you can tell it was a Brad one. George, I'm going to come to you in a second. So think of one, please. For a theme, yeah. Name the five clubs that Marouane Shamak played for 
in his senior professional career. I'm asking you to name the five clubs that Maran Shamak played for, in inverted commas, in his senior professional career. And George, a theme please, my friend. Well, it, I think in a, in a way to kind of comment on uh, the Detroit Pistons of the podcast, who was the uh, biggest hard man or hard men of Arsenal? Hard men uh, of Arsenal. Love it. Love it. Great who is your Dennis Brad, Rodman? Step up your game. Oh, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Dennis Rodman was a badass man. I love Dennis Rodman. I love that, that documentary. It's so good. I love the bit where they just let him go to like party. They're just like, oh, I just let him do it. It's yeah, so yeah. good. It's so good. You have to let the boy go to Vegas. And he's like, you're yeah. not getting him back in two days. <laughs> yeah, no chance. He's like, Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Scotty Pippen's voice is crazy as well. He's like, yeah, Michael was kind of like this. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's so cool. Are you, is, is basketball big in Canada? Yeah, it's really big. Yeah, it's it's like the, second behind ba- like the um, hockey. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Brad, Raptors are very good. Let me just ask you as the as the Canadian of the group. Right? <laughs> no, it's only because I know that they Can got the Raptors. Answer, they, won the, they won the championship a little while ago, didn't they? <laughs> they did. Quite they did. Toronto. We Toronto. did this. None of this was here. It was all me. I'm Drake. <laughs> Dreams the of the sixth six. god. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> right boys it's been an absolute I say pleasure but I feel like we sorted a few things out um, Rob Holding fix your hairline fix your play style yep it's uh, <laughs> certainly <sighs> on the cards we'll be back after Southampton on Friday for an instant reaction we'll be back over the weekend with a podcast thanks as always for listening we hope you're doing well um, look after yourselves um, we're not out yet we're not out of it yet. In our hands. If we go, and, and also, I, I, I'm I going to risk uh, angering Gary Adams by saying this. You know what I'm going to say. There's a really good clip of Gary Neville out there where he says, ultimately, if someone said to you, you have to go somewhere, and if you go there, you win the league, an away fixture. Doesn't mention it's Man City. But <laughs> you have to go there and win, and, and win that game to win the league. We'd have taken it. So, look. Oh, yeah. And we're going to do to it, be baby. The man, you got to be the Three man. points at the Etihad are coming home. It's coming home. Stranger things have happened. Thanks as always. Keep a different knock and we will see you later. Peace. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to the Different Knock and Arsenal podcast. Please hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. If you'd like to support The Different Knock, you can find us on Patreon and buymeacoffee.com. We're on all social media at DiffKnock. Thanks. Sports Social Podcast Network.